You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Free agency is a heck of a thing, isn't it? Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Let me just tell you, we have a lot of things to go over. It's going to kind of be a smorgasbord sort of episode. So we are going to do our best to get to a lot of information on this podcast, because tonight, if you're listening to this on Thursday, the 18th, tonight, I will be live on the locker room app. And I want to make sure I have gotten through the majority of the things I want to talk about so that I can make sure I talk about the things that you want to talk about. So make sure you're joining me tonight on the locker room app at 7 p.m. Of course, it will drop as an audio podcast on Friday as well. So We are going to talk about some of the moves that have been made by the Bills, by their division rivals, and some smattering of things around the league that I find interesting. There's no possible way I can go through all of them. And some lessons I think that we may have been able to learn from this offseason so far. Because the more data you collect on these teams, on decision makers, the more obvious it is that there are trends Now, they're not hard and fast rules. They're still human beings who are prone to different types of things based on their particular mood, based on their particular opportunity. But there are some trends that can be identified. So let's start with the Bills moves. Obviously, re-sign Matt Milano, re-sign Darrell Williams, re-sign John Feliciano. Andre Roberts left to go to the Texans. So... Kick returner, punt returner becomes a question at this point. Levi Wallace was not tendered, but Ike Butker was. Corey Bohorquez was not. And Matt Hawk was signed. These are the Bills things I want to talk about a little bit in addition to the signing of Emmanuel Sanders. So we talked about Matt Milano last week with me and Anthony Marino. So I'm not going to touch on it a lot, but I will say this. I think that our idea of he's earned the right to see what his market bears doesn't mean what we think it means. I think we interpreted that when we heard it about Matt Milano and we thought back to what Brandon Bean said about Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson. We interpreted that as he's gone. 
And then that was further crystallized in our minds by reports by John Warrow of the Associated Press saying he's going to test free agency. And then all of a sudden he resigns and there are reports on a national level saying the Bills were pleasantly surprised that he resigned. Let's put together these pieces. I have a feeling that we interpret he's earned the right to see what his market bears as he's gone. But what if it actually means something different? What if he's earned the right to see what his market bears is we have made our best and final offer? I wanted to talk about this because I mentioned it in passing on Trainwreck Sports on the Crowd Assist podcast, and I wanted to bring it up here as well. What if that phrase just means we've made our best and final and we don't think it's palatable to them? We've gone as high as we're going to go. We've set a number we're comfortable with, and I don't think they're going to bite, which means they've earned the right to go out into the market and see if that market is better than our market. Shaq Lawson openly admitted that the Bills made an offer to keep him. It just wasn't as good as Miami's offer. So in this case, we know, based on putting these things together, based on Brandon Bean's statement about Matt Milano, that was then further established by John Warrow of the Associated Press reporting that Matt Milano is going to test free agency. And then all of a sudden, Matt Milano resigns, and the national reporting is the Bills were pleasantly surprised. I put these things together, and I come away with the idea that the phrase, he's earned the right to see what his market bears, means we have made a best and final. We don't think he's going to take it. He'll go out there and see if there's something better. And in the case of Phillips and Lawson, there was something better. But in the case of Matt Milano, Levante David signed for 12.5. And maybe that agent doesn't start to get the warm and fuzzies about the market the way that they thought they were going to get the warm and fuzzies about the market. And so they come back to the Bills and they go, hey, Bills, do you remember that offer you had for us? I'd like to take it now. It's entirely speculation on my part. It's just connecting dots. But I think it's interesting because this is going to happen again. Brandon Bean will say this phrase again. And it's important to note that I think we've potentially been misinterpreting what that phrase means. I think that the phrase, he's earned the right to see what his market bears, is really, we've made him an offer. Let's see if he takes it. Let's see if there's something better out there. If he wants to go out there and get something better, it's there. So that's the interesting thing about Matt Milano. Daryl Williams, I'm thrilled to have back. I've talked ad nauseum this offseason that Daryl Williams was my number one priority even over Matt Milano. The right tackle market did not look fun for me out there. So I'm very happy to have Daryl Williams back. The John Feliciano move is one that I'm eh about. I'm eh about. And it's really important that we have this discussion because I have a lot of new followers on Twitter, a lot of new followers on Instagram, a lot of new listeners to this podcast. What people want is they want reactions that are zeros or a hundreds and they want them now. That's what they want. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of opinions are in the middle somewhere. 
I made a comment a couple weeks ago that I was 55-45 in favor of waiting another year on a Josh Allen extension. 55-45. So with John Feliciano, I'm eh on it. And I'll tell you why I'm eh on it. 5.6 roughly average annual value. A little bit better than the Quentin Spain deal, which I was also eh on. And the reason that is, is because if you think he's a starter, I think he's upgradable. And if you think he's insurance policy, I think he's too expensive. And if you think he's a backup, I think he's too expensive. Those three things. If you think he's a starter, I think you could upgrade from him. I think John Feliciano is a perfectly reasonable starter in the NFL. I don't think he's a good starter. I think he's fine. If you think he's a backup, I think that's too expensive for a backup, even if you have a player who can play guard and center. Well, goodness gracious, guys, we have a guard who can play center. We had that for cheaper with Spencer Long. We cut him before the year. He was a swing interior lineman. And again, perfectly fine. Not good, just fine. You could get that cheaper. Well, Bruce, he's an insurance policy. He's an insurance policy in case we're not able to upgrade. Well, that's okay, but he's an expensive insurance policy. Insurance premium is what you give the insurance company and the policy is what they give you back. There is such a thing as overpriced insurance policies. And that's what I think that John Felisano was. So that's the reason why I'm eh about it. I don't think it's a bad move. I'm just not thrilled about it. I'm not mad about it. I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm meh. If you remember from the book of Bruce, one of the things that I think is kind of fundamental to my team building philosophy is don't re-sign players. So I wouldn't have re-signed John Feliciano. I would have let him walk. We've talked about that before. I'm not mad about it because the Bills didn't overpay drastically. It's not like they paid him $8 million a year, which is what the spot track projection was for him. And I was like, absolutely, heck no. 5.6 is much more reasonable, which is, again, a little bit more than Quentin Spain got for a reasonable guard. I'm eh on it. I'm not thrilled. I'm not mad. I'm eh. The Andre Roberts thing matters to me. Not because I think Andre Roberts is a great player. I think he's a good returner. He's a good returner. And the fact that he didn't make plays on offense last year wasn't really that relevant to me. I did an entire pod before the cuts last offseason on why Andre Roberts deserved a roster spot. At this point, if I can find a way to get Andre Roberts and also get someone who contributes on offense and defense for those roles, I'm for it. How about a Dory Jackson can come in and play cornerback for you, has kick and punt return ability. I'm all for it. Gives you that athleticism and has had an opportunity to play well in this league. Those are some things that have happened with the Bills, but most recently, it's been Ike Butker being tendered and it has been Emmanuel Sanders signing. Now, the immediate comparison that will happen for you is Emmanuel Sanders and John Brown. Let me start with this. I think that Emmanuel Sanders is a better player than John Brown. I do. He's also an older player than John Brown, but the Bills might have had concerns about John Brown's injury lingering on and being really banged up. I think it's interesting that Brandon Bean has been openly trying to obtain Emmanuel Sanders for a couple years now. 
trade deadlines, sniffed around. He's been interested in Emmanuel Sanders. And I think that's interesting because Emmanuel Sanders, Beasley, John Brown, Stefan Diggs represent an incredible departure from the type of receiver that was popular with Bean in the front office when he was in Carolina. And I don't feel like we talk about this quite enough. When Cam Newton was in Carolina, it was Devin Funchess and Kelvin Benjamin. Those are the players they brought in to help their young quarterback. It was that kind of player, the twin towers that they had that were so important. I think that's really interesting because it's the opposite of what he did in Buffalo. Now, he did bring in Kelvin Benjamin, but that didn't go very well. And then all of a sudden, stylistically, there's a change. Because I think the definition of quarterback friendly is different than you might think. Quarterback friendly receivers aren't necessarily receivers who have a significant catch radius. Can come down with contested balls. We talked about this when the Bills traded for Stephon Diggs in 2020. Quarterback friendly receivers are people who can separate and present themselves to a quarterback. Especially if you have a see it and throw it quarterback. Josh Allen was a beneficiary of stylistically the type of receiver that Stephon Diggs is. Not just his talent level, but also stylistically the type of player he is. Emmanuel Sanders is that same type of player. Emmanuel Sanders is the same style of player as Beasley and Diggs in the sense that he's an exceptional route runner. The Bills, I don't know if this is a hot take or not, with the top three receivers that the Bills have, Diggs, Sanders, Beasley, that is the best route running trio in the NFL. I don't think that's actually a hot take all that much. I really don't. As far as being able to separate against man and find spots in zone, I think that is the best route running trio in the NFL. And I have no problem with one year, $6 million for Emmanuel Sanders, especially considering some of the numbers that have been thrown around at the wide receiver market this offseason. Kendrick Bourne? Nah, I'm, I'm good, fam. Nelson Aguilar had a nice bounce back season in Oakland. He really did. I think that the Patriots are hoping they get John Brown, somebody who has been underutilized and actually can be a complete receiver. That's what they're hoping they're getting. But I didn't like the price tag. So for me, I'm perfectly happy with the Emmanuel Sanders deal. I wish they could have extended John Brown another season. But if, again, you're putting together all the pieces with John Brown openly saying that there was no discussion with his agent, he could be lying, but it doesn't look like the Bills offered him a restructure, which means they just preferred Emmanuel Sanders, which is fine. I prefer Emmanuel Sanders as a player, too. I love John Brown. I want to keep John Brown. I specifically said I don't want you to thrust Gabriel Davis into wide receiver, two and assume improvement. And now we don't have to assume improvement. We have a vet in front of him. We don't have to assume that he's going to take the next step. If he does, great. Emmanuel Sanders would be a great wide receiver four. If he doesn't take the next step, 
Good. We haven't hedged a major part of our passing offense to a player who we're hoping takes the next step. Greg Tomset, Cover One Sports, famously says, hope is not a plan. That's that's a good point here. Hope is not a plan. The thing I think is interesting about the Gabriel Davis conversation is that we saw this before. One of my listeners actually messaged me about it. We've seen this before. We saw it with Peerless Price and Josh Reed. Traded Peerless Price to the Falcons. Well, Josh Reed is ready to stand up. He's ready to be that guy. He wasn't ready to be that guy. This is a hedge against that particular thing. So, we've talked about the Bills' maneuvers, but we've left out Ike Butker. That just happened a few hours before I'm recording this podcast. I'm happy about the Ike Butker tendering. I think, again, it's important to not assume improvement from Cody Ford. I like hedging your bets. I like understanding that if a worst case scenario happens, I want to have something okay. As long as the premium for that hedge and the premium you pay for that insurance policy isn't too high. And $2.1 million is a perfectly reasonable hedge against Cody Ford not taking the next step at left guard. Because it looks like Ryan Bates might end up being the swing tackle. Important to note, there are some differences of opinion on the definition of swing tackle. When you listen to me say the phrase swing tackle, what I mean is if you are the first person off the bench, if the left tackle goes down and you're the first person off the bench when the right tackle goes down, you're the swing tackle. By definition, that's your role. If you were the first person off the bench, if either one of the tackles goes down, you're the swing tackle. And it looks like there might be a reasonable case, assuming there's one added in the draft, that Ryan Bates might be that guy. So if he's that on the outside, Ike Butker can be that on the inside and hedge against the idea that Cody Ford might not improve. That's good. I'm for it. There was one more move made by the Buffalo Bills so far this offseason as it relates to the punter position. And that is the Bills signed former Miami Dolphins punter Matt Hawk. H-A-A-C-K pronounced Hawk. The terms of the deal, which you can get at buffalorumblings.com, indicate that they are likely not going to tender or re-sign former punter Corey Bohorkas. I think it's a downgrade. I do. I put some figures up on Twitter about Hawk versus Bohorkas. Bohorkas was first in the league with a 50.8 yard average. Matt Hawk was 24th with a 44.7. Boho was 5th in net yardage per punt. Hawk was 20th. Hawk was 14th in percentage of punts returned. Boho was 21st. Hawk was 7th in average hang time. Boho was 6th. Hawk had 30 of his 68 punts inside the 20, which is 44%. Bohorkas had 19 of 41 punts inside the 20, which is 46%. Hawk had two of the 68 punts, touchback, 3%. Boho had seven of his 41 punts that were touchbacks, which is 17%. Even given the discrepancy in touchback percentage, Boho still was better in net yards per punt, 44 to 39.8. A lot of people were like, well, he's better at punts inside the 20. No, he's not. He had 
a higher raw number of punts inside the 20, but he had a lower percentage of punts inside the 20. Well, his touchback percentage was way better. It was way better. But even given that, the net yardage per punt, which considers touchbacks, mind you, was still better for Boho. So I don't think it's really all that debatable that it's overall it's a downgrade. Now, it doesn't matter all that much if you get consistency. But go ask the Dolphins fans how they feel about Matt Hawk. We do this as sports fans. We rush to defend a guy we barely even know because our team just signed him. The data seems to indicate to me that Bohorquez was a better punter. Now, here's a factor to consider. Money may be a factor here. If Bohorquez wanted to be the highest paid punter in the league, that's, you know, three plus million dollars a year. Matt Hawk signed for $1.8 million roughly a year. And his cap hit this year is lower than that. So money is a factor here. The other factor is how little the Bills punt. So that lessens the importance of punting. So those things are factors for sure, but they don't make Hawk better than Bohorkas in 2020. Could he perform better next year? Maybe, but also you got to understand that Hawk played eight of his games in sunny Miami. That matters. Having a big leg punter matters in the wind. And the Bills Stadium, formerly New Era Field, formerly Ralph Wilson Jr. Stadium, whatever it's going to be moving forward, has some swirling winds coming off the lake. That matters. I do think it's a downgrade. I don't think it matters a ton that it's a downgrade, but it's enough that I would prefer, if all things were equal, the Bills to have re-signed Corey Bohorkas. But we don't know if all things were equal. In addition, there were some players out there that I actually think we're on the market who are better. Morstead, Townsend, who's an exclusive rights free agency. I don't think he got tendered. And Johnston, we're all free agents who have historically performed better than Hawk. So it wasn't necessarily a nobody was better available either. So I don't love the move. I'm not going to throw my hands up in the air and throw a fit about it. I just need to explain why I didn't like it. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back and... We're going to try and touch on some things that the Bills division opponents have done. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. So the Bills weren't the only team in the AFC East to make moves. In fact, they may have been the team in the AFC East to make the least amount of moves. Why is that? Well, quite frankly, it's because the Bills are the division champions. They're the hunted, not the hunters. So let's talk about some moves that have been made by our division opponents. I'm going to run through all of the transactions made by each team and then kind of give you a general feeling for how I feel about their moves. The Miami Dolphins signed defensive tackle Adam Butler to a two-year $9.5 million contract signed cornerback Justin Coleman to a one-year $2.75 million contract. They tendered Adam Pankey, tackle. They signed Jacoby Brissett 
to a one-year $7.5 million contract. They signed Malcolm Brown to a one-year $1.75 million contract. They signed Keith and Carter to a three-year $7.8 million contract. They signed Vince Beagle, outside linebacker, to a one-year contract. They traded former Bills defensive end Shaq Lawson to the Houston Texans, along with a sixth-round pick for linebacker Bernardrick McKinney and a seventh-round pick. They signed former Carolina Panthers punter Michael Pilardi. They released Kyle Van Noy, inside linebacker. They traded their seventh-round pick to Tennessee for their seventh-round pick and Isaiah Wilson. So a seventh-round pick swap for Isaiah Wilson. They signed Jamal Perry, Nick Needham, both cornerbacks, and Calvin Munson, inside linebacker. They also re-signed their kicker, Jason Sanders, to a five-year, $22 million contract. Overall, what Miami did was, so far, a little bit passive. They were a little bit more passive than I thought. I really like the Justin Coleman signing for them a lot. I think Justin Coleman kind of played under his usual play last year. And I think if he can recapture his form, I think he's going to be really good. Jacoby Brissett was obviously a backup quarterback target for me. You've heard me talk about that before. So having him back up Tua or Deshaun Watson or whoever happens to be there seems reasonable to me. So I like those two signings if I'm them. The Shaq Lawson for Bernardrick McKinney, I don't love because I think Lawson's a better player at defensive end. I understand his snaps went down a little bit last year, but I don't think they necessarily should have. I mean... Flores also benched Fitzpatrick for Tua, and I don't think he should have done that either. So just because he got less snaps doesn't necessarily mean he's not a better player. The Kyle Van Noy thing, Van Noy gave them the level of play that I was expecting. He's a good linebacker. He's a good linebacker in that system. But when you overpay someone, which I think the Miami Dolphins did in 2020, the next year comes around, those players might not be around anymore. And that's important. That's really important as we go on to the next team, but we're not there yet. The Isaiah Wilson thing, why not? It's a dart throw. He was a first-round pick one year ago, see if he can get his head on straight. Why not? Jason Sanders is probably one of the best kickers in the league, so re-signing him is completely okay. I don't love five-year contracts for kickers. I don't love super long contracts for kickers. One of the things that's interesting about kickers in general is that kickers are good until they're not. They're good until they're not. All of a sudden, they suffer an injury. They just never regain it again. When they fall off a cliff, they fall off a cliff fast. And when that happens, I want to make sure I can get out as fast as humanly possible. And the interesting thing for me about the Jason Sanders contract is that they can get out essentially whenever they want with no dead cap. So I don't historically like longer contracts for specialists, specifically kickers. However, this particular deal... Not that bad. If he hits the wall, you can get out with really no issue. If he doesn't hit the wall, you have one of the best kickers in the league under contract for a while. So don't have too much of an issue with this contract. The New York Jets signed running back Josh Adams, cornerback Justin Hardy to a three-year $6.75 million contract, linebacker Jared Davis, one-year $5.5 million Defensive end Carl Lawson, three years, $45 million contract. Corey Davis, three years, $37.5 million. Vincent Smith, one-year contract. Tagged Marcus May, 
They released Henry Anderson. Those are the things that the Jets have done. I've said for weeks that I thought Carl Lawson's 8.8 projected from Track was way too low. He got 15 million. It was way too low. I liked Carl Lawson. I liked him a lot. I think that he was one of the better pass rushers that didn't have the sack numbers for you to understand the impact that he made. I think very similar to Jerry Hughes, he's somebody who, if you look at the impact he made and not just the sacks, you'll think more highly of him. And I was kind of hoping that would make him fly a little under the radar, but that didn't happen. 15 million is a lot, but the Jets haven't had an impact pass rusher since John Abraham. I mean, Calvin Pace had a good year, really, but that's it. They haven't had a good pass rusher, a singular pass rusher since John Abraham. So they've been trying a lot of different ways to make it work, but they decided that they were going to go all in on Carl Lawson. They got him. I'm not happy about it, but they did pay him a lot of money. The Corey Davis is good for them as well. Three years, $37.5 million. I think that's perfectly reasonable for Corey Davis as far as the price tag goes. And he's somebody who finally came on a little bit in Tennessee. He had been hurt. And once Ryan Tannehill showed up last year and they started to install that play action intermediate attack, that is Arthur Smith's, who's now the head coach in Atlanta. I think Corey Davis really had a chance to blossom a little bit. And, you know, he was a first round pick for a reason. And teams are going to care about that. Teams are always going to care about that. People who have pedigree that comes from being a highly drafted pick is always going to intrigue head coaches in front office because there's arrogance there. There's arrogance there. We can get it out of them. You just didn't use them right. We can totally do it because they remember when they scouted them when they came out. And the closer answer in their mind to being correct isn't I made a mistake, it's you made a mistake. So if a front office has the ability to either confront their own ideas that maybe this player isn't as good as they thought it was going to be, or another explanation is they were misused and the other coaching staff doesn't know what they're doing, what do you think they're going to do? Football is full of type A alpha personalities, huge egos. So players like Corey Davis are always going to get more cracks at it. So three years, $37.5 million. So he broke out a little bit in Tennessee this year, but even if he hadn't broken out, he probably still would have gotten a crack because that's just kind of the way these things work. The New England Patriots had a lot of money and they threw it around. Cody Davis signed a two-year contract. They put a second-round tender on the cornerback J.C. Jackson. It'll be very interesting to see if there's any bites there. Ted Karras signed center. Hunter Henry, three years, $37.5 million. Matt Judon, four years, $54.5 million. Devon Godchow, two years, $15 million. Jonu Smith, four years, $50 million. Nelson Aguilar, two years, $22 million. Jalen Mills, four-year, $24 million. Kendrick Bourne, three years, $15 million. Marcus Cannon traded to Houston for a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth round pick swap. So they moved up in the draft in the fourth, fifth, and sixth round in exchange for Marcus Cannon. Signed Cam Newton, 
one year, $5.1 million. Traded for Trent Brown, former New England Patriot from the Las Vegas Raiders. Gave them a fifth and got back a seventh. So I give you a fifth, you give me back Trent Brown and a seventh. So it's pretty clear to me that the New England Patriots are going to look a lot different in 2021. But they needed to look a lot different in 2021. They had to look different because they were not a talented team in 2020. The thing that I think is interesting about New England is that they're constantly trying to find market inefficiencies. They're trying to find those things economically and strategically. They were the first team in the mid-2000s to try that 12 personnel with Gronk and Aaron Hernandez and get it to work and be able to flex them out wide, bring them in tight, keep the same personnel on the field and put you in a weird position as a defense where if you go nickel, you're too light and if you go base, you're too slow. They were the pioneers of that sort of idea. They might be going back to that style of play now. But the other part of that is the tight end market inefficiency, which I think is interesting to bring up. I also had a listener ask me about this particular thing. And the reason that is, is because tight end top money is wide receiver 15 money, basically. So is there a market inefficiency there? Could you potentially take advantage of this by signing tight ends instead of wide receivers because they have a lower average annual value? Is that something that you could do if you're the New England Patriots and get away with it? And the answer is maybe. Where does having an elite tight end come into play? Why is it so important that they're a tight end and not just a wide receiver? Why does it matter? The value in tight ends is in what I already mentioned. The value in an elite tight end is the ability to block better than a wide receiver, but catch just as well. Otherwise, the team's just going to treat you like a wide receiver. And if you're in line, it doesn't really matter. And those people are rare. So the answer is yes, there's a market inefficiency if you're really good at both. If you have a tight end who's really good in line and also as a receiver, if you get Gronk, then yes, prime Gronk was a nightmare because he could block like an offensive lineman and run the seam like a wide receiver and be contested catch worthy and separate vertically. That's why prime Gronk was such a nightmare. So yes, if you can get those people, then it becomes a market inefficiency because the number one paid tight end can actually offer you more schematic versatility than the appropriately paid and equivalently paid wide receiver. But that only works if you can do both. If you can't do both, then you start to lose the benefit of that market inefficiency. And the thing I think is interesting about New England is that the reason they're here is because they didn't draft well. And I've been saying that for a long time. I said the Bills drafted better than the Patriots the last couple of years. And the Patriots don't historically draft wide receivers very well. And I had people in my mentions saying, well, they drafted Super Bowl MVPs. As if somehow that's the determiner of a good wide receiver. You won a Super Bowl MVP. You're going to take literally one game out of all the games they've played and say, look, look, they're a Super Bowl MVP. That must mean they're good. When you don't have a foundation of young, 
good, cheap players, and you don't have the time or capability of obtaining that, then this is what you do. You spend, spend, spend. I'm not saying the Patriots didn't get better. The Patriots did get better. They didn't get better value, which we talked ad nauseum about leading up to free agency specifically so we can have these conversations now. They didn't get good value on most of these contracts, to be honest. I don't hate the Hunter Henry deal. I don't love it. It's okay. I don't love the Judon deal. I don't love the Jonu Smith deal. I really don't like the Jalen Mills deal. I don't like the Kendrick Bourne deal. I like the Trent Brown deal. I like being able to get Trent Brown back at right tackle. Cam Newton for one year, $5 million, perfectly reasonable. They were reporting it was $14 million, but it's loaded with incentives. Cam Newton has a lower base salary on his deal than Jacoby Brissett. That's fine. You want to take a shot at it? If you want to see if he has a chance to bounce back, then sure, why not? But you're not going to be able to accumulate that foundation of good young players as cheaply now because you didn't draft well, which means building your foundation now costs more money, which means you now have less money left over for the framing and the insulation and the roof. Drafting well leads to sustainability. And Bill Belichick had a lot of money. And do you think he wants to go through an entire full rebuild? Well, that would necessitate that you draft well, which they have historically not done. So this is what happens. So they did get better. The Patriots got better. They're going to be better. There was no choice for them but to get better. They had a ton of money and a a team that wasn't very talented last year. There was very, very, very little chance the Patriots were going to be less talented in 2021 than they were in 2020. But I don't like the method by which they did it. Overall, I'm perfectly fine with what the Bills did. As far as remaining needs go, For the Buffalo Bills. I'd love to see a veteran tight end. I would love to see a veteran who can compete for cornerback two. And I would be okay overall if that was it going into the draft. Because everything else has pretty much been taken care of. I'd like to see a return man. Cordero Patterson would be nice. But you can find return men in the draft. And you can prioritize that in addition to other things. I've talked about Adoree Jackson would give us multiple, multiple needs filled with one contract. Now, I think it might cost you a little bit of money to get him. Not a ton. The Titans cut him and saved $10 million. So my guess is you're not gonna have to pay him $10 million. But he's a player who's played well and can give you some returnability. So that would be okay. Joe Marino locked on bills suggested Ross Cockrell as a cornerback too. I'm completely on board with that. So there are some things I'd like to see still from the Buffalo Bills. But by the time you're listening to this podcast, those things might have already happened because now it's 5.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on March the 17th. And you never know. Tonight could be the night. But until next time, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumble.